Well, thanks for being here this morning, guys. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for what you're doing in our lives and how you're equipping us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you here right now to prepare us um, for future conversations that we're going to have. Lord, I, I just think of what Paul said in Philippians uh, 4 or 5, to let your reasonableness be known to everybody. And Lord, I pray that through uh, the thinking of, of, of logic and uh, recognizing logical fallacies, that we would be the most reasonable and logical uh, people on the planet, Lord, and also uh, the most loving. So Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be uh, logical and loving people, that we would love you with all of our hearts and that we would love all people um, like you do, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to look at a common mistake that uh, people make quite often, Christians and non-Christians. Uh, people make uh, commit what we call logical fallacies, and this is based out of a book by Dr. William Lane Craig called Learning Logic, and I highly recommend it. Um, so let's start out considering a couple examples. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. If not, take mental notes. All right, example number one. If Tim and Tia are eating at the egg and I, then they are having breakfast. Premise two. Tim and Tia are having breakfast. Three. Therefore, they are eating at the egg and I. Okay. Some of you are shaking your heads. All right, let's, let's let that simmer a little bit. Let's go on to this other one. Example two. If God is timeless, then he is unchanging. Premise two. God is unchanging. Conclusion, therefore, he is timeless. Let me read that one again. If God is timeless, then he's unchanging. God is unchanging, therefore, he is timeless. Okay, let's think about that one a little bit, and we'll get back to it. Let's go back to example number one. What do you, what do you think is wrong with example number one? Let me refresh your memory. If Tim and Tia are eating at the egg and I, then they're having breakfast. Tim and Tia are having breakfast, therefore, they are eating at the egg and I. Uh, that's exactly right, Isaiah. We could be having breakfast at home or somewhere else. Uh, so think back to last week's lesson. We talked about uh, different kinds of conditional statements. We talked about necessary conditions. And what's the other kind? Sufficient, sufficient conditions, right? Necessary and sufficient conditions. So um, with argument number one, uh, what's wrong with the argument is that premise one states only a sufficient, not a necessary condition of their having breakfast. Um, so if Tim and Tia are eating at the egg and I, then they are having breakfast. Okay. So if Tim and Tia are eating at the egg and I, then they are having breakfast. But it does not follow that because they are having breakfast, then they are eating at the egg and I. Like Isaiah said, maybe we're eating cereal at home. We could have that for breakfast. Or maybe we went to Perkins instead for breakfast. Right? So it doesn't follow. Now, it could be true that we are at the egg and I, but it doesn't follow from that argument. That's not what the argument says. 
Okay, so I want you to, to understand that. It very well could, could be true that we are at the agoni, but it is not according to this argument that we can come to that conclusion. It's not what the argument is saying. Let's look at example two. What's wrong with example two? Well, it's the same thing. Um, again, let me refresh your memory there. If God is timeless, then he is unchanging. God is unchanging, therefore he is timeless. So if God is timeless, then he is unchanging. However, that does not imply that because he is unchanging, he is therefore timeless. So it could mean that, but it doesn't follow from this argument that that's the case. I mean, perhaps God is in time, but never changes, though everything else does. And then sometimes you got to ask, you know, specific questions like, what do you mean by change, right? And, you know, physical things change in a different kind of way than immaterial things would uh, or would not. I mean, you have to get some, uh, get some things specified here. So, uh, Dr. Craig says that this is a logical no-no and that, and that this logical fallacy is called affirming the consequent. Okay, So write that down, affirming the consequent. This is something you do not want to do. Both the examples that we looked at um, commit this logical fallacy. Now a fallacy means breaking the rules of logic. Breaking the rules of logic. So these fallacies, there's some fallacies that have become so common that they get their own names. So it's quite an honor, you know. <laughs> you make a mistake. So many people are making the same mistake that you get your own name. Now, this one's called affirming the consequent. But I'll tell you, in my experience, nothing infuriates an atheist more than pointing out the logical fallacies they commit. Calvinists are a close second. Uh, <laughs> but... And it's, it's kind of crazy to me. I mean, when you point, point out a specific fallacy somebody's making, they many times take that as an attack on their character. Um, and I, I noticed this this last week I, uh, on my day off. I didn't have to go teach this week, so I, I debated almost the whole day um, and uh, on, on Facebook. And I probably shouldn't have, <laughs> but... Um, you know, there's, there's some of the, the regulars uh, came in, and, and you know, they're, we're used to our uh, kind of conversations and debate with each other, but we had a, a fairly new guy jump in, and he didn't handle it well. In fact, he ultimately started private messaging me and just cussing at me like crazy. But, um, but it was because he got so furious that I was pointing out some logical fallacies that he was making. Um, now... I've had people, uh, namely Zach at one time, pointed out a fallacy I was committing a couple years ago. And I just don't understand why people have to get mad. I mean, for me, I was like, oh, wow, wow, I am here. I need to change, right? Uh, maybe what I'm arguing for is true, but it's not for this reason, right? So I actually enjoy being sharpened that way. When somebody can demonstrate to me, look, you're making a mistake here. Um, if you want to reach that conclusion, you got to reach it another way. Uh, so I, I just want to encourage you guys, you know, try not to make logical fallacies, but man, consider it, uh, 
It's almost a compliment if somebody's showing you that because they're making you a better thinker. You know, thank the person. Don't get mad at them for demonstrating that you're committing a logical fallacy. Um, like I said, in some of, the, some of these uh, conversations I have, uh, people that are committed to their conclusion um, or their worldview, uh, if you demonstrate a logical fallacy showing that the reason they're concluding their worldview is true isn't good, and therefore that's not a reason to conclude that their worldview is true, uh, if they're committed to that worldview, I think that's when they get emotional. Um, now, if somebody, if I'm arguing for Christianity and I'm making an error, um, if somebody demonstrates that I'm making an error, then I just realize, okay, uh, either Christianity is not true or I'm arguing incorrectly and I need to find a better argument. Okay? Um, and uh, it all, you know, uh, uh, so far, <laughs> I've, I've never been, a, or I should say, uh, the arguments that I've used can be corrected. Uh, Christianity stands strong. Um, but I'm willing. I mean, here's the thing. I've changed my mind on many things because I've realized that I've committed logical errors in coming to my conclusions. Uh, for example, when it comes to the age of the universe, I changed my mind on that. Right? When it came to Calvinism, I was a hardcore strong five-point Calvinist, and I started realizing after studying logic that I was uh, coming to that conclusion fallaciously, and so I changed my mind. So I'm willing to change my mind, and it's once you understand these laws of logic that it, it helps you to do that. And, and a lot of times it comes when people demonstrate that you're making logical fallacies coming to your conclusions. So the one we're going to focus on today is called affirming the consequent. So to understand this fallacy, we need to learn a couple new terms. So in a sentence of the form, P arrow Q, all right, what does that mean? If I write P arrow Q, P implies Q, right? So it looks like this, P arrow Q. That means if P, then Q, or P implies Q, okay? In a sentence of that form, the P clause is called the antecedent. Okay, so P here is the antecedent. Okay, so that's your first new term you're learning. The antecedent clause and the Q is called, what do you think? The consequent, that's right. Consequent. Okay, antecedent and the consequent. So, a few weeks ago we talked about modus ponens arguments, okay? And that means that we affirm by affirming. So if we affirm that the antecedent P is true, then the consequent is also true. So, so remember the modus ponens looks like P implies Q. All right, P arrow Q. And then we affirm the antecedent and we uh, say P, and then it follows, since P implies Q, that Q is true also. So that's modus ponens. Now modus tollens says that if we deny the consequent is true, 
then the antecedent P must also be denied. So since, P, since if P is true, then Q is also true. If you then deny, there's the, the symbol for negation. If you deny the consequent, so here we're denying Q, then what does that mean? Yeah, that's right, not P, okay? So that's modus tollens. If you have a hard time remembering the difference between modus ponens and modus tollens, what I do uh, is I just remember that paying tolls is usually a negative thing. <laughs> so uh, paying tolls is negative, therefore modus tollens is negative. All right, I don't know if that's good logic, but it uh, helps me remember it. Um, <coughs> so we deny by denying. So if P implies Q, it is valid reasoning to either affirm the antecedent or deny the consequent and then draw the appropriate conclusion. But many people make the mistake of affirming the consequent, and this is breaking the rules of logic. So from the premises, uh, P implies Q, and then if you just say Q, well, what can you get from that? What can you get? I just say you get a big question mark. Because <laughs> you just, you can't conclude anything from that. Let, let's, let's consider this. Uh, three uh, arguments um, considering matter and space. I think kind of brought this up at the end of last week's discussion. All right, premise one. Matter implies space. Right? Matter cannot exist unless space exists. So you can say, uh, if matter exists, then space also exists. If you then deny the consequent and say space does not exist, therefore, what else does not exist? Matter. Okay? Here's an, an argument for idealism here. Okay? Um, like uh, Fotini Markopolo would, would argue um, that matter implies space. She does not think that space necessarily exists. And if that's true, then matter does not exist also. Therefore, your body doesn't exist. You just think it does. We would really be unembodied minds that think we have bodies, if you think about it that way. I just wrote a, a blog for freakingministries.com and where I interacted with uh, Stephen Fry's um, two-minute video that I, I, ver I wrote a version of this blog that I shared at Reasonable Faith UNK a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and I got into this a little bit because Stephen Fry is saying, hey, if you're disembodied, then, you know, what good is that? You can't even enjoy the, 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 the sun on your face. And I talked about the Matrix and how, well, Neo didn't have a body there, but uh, you could have fooled him. He sure thought he was enjoying the sun on his face if he was outside, you know. And, uh, and I said, but some scientists even think that this is how uh, this world is right now. And I offered this idealism uh, argument, and I said, I'm not convinced that this is true, but if it's possible that this world is like, like that right now and that we really are disembodied and we can still enjoy what seems to be real physical things, even if it's not really physical, if it's possible that this world can be like that, why can't heaven? You know, that's just my, my question. But anyway, 
back to this argument. Matter implies space. Uh, premise two, no space. Therefore, conclusion, no matter. Okay, but let's look at this. If you said matter implies space, and then uh, you affirm the antecedent, and you say there is matter, then the conclusion follows, therefore there is space. Good job, all right? Matter implies space. Premise two, there is matter. Conclusion, therefore there is space. But let's think about this. If we wrote it this way, matter implies space, and then you just wrote space, what's your conclusion? You got a big question mark right here, right? We can't conclude anything because space could be empty, right? It doesn't demand that matter exists. It's not a, a sufficient condition, okay? It doesn't guarantee that matter will exist. If matter exists, it guarantees that space exists. It's a sufficient condition for space. Does that make sense? Okay. And this goes back to the Kalam and arguments like that, that we can know that the cause of space must be immaterial since matter requires space to exist. And so, uh, so the cause of space can't be matter because that's like saying matter existed before matter existed. And that's incoherent. That's another uh, logical fallacy. All right. So remember that when we say that an argument is invalid, we do not mean that the conclusion of the argument is false necessarily. So in examples one and two that we looked at, the conclusions might very well be true, but they do not logically follow from the premises. Okay? So there's lots of times <clears throat> when we're going to argue for something, and we're going to argue for something with a true conclusion, but we're arguing incorrectly. It's all, you know, think about this. It's almost like if you, uh, all right, suppose you're, you're in a math class, and the teacher wants to see your work, right? A lot of times the teacher says, hey, show your work, because you might have the right answer. But if your work isn't correct, you're not going to get the, uh, you're not going to get credit for that problem, right? Um, at least not full credit, <laughs> um, because you did, you did the work wrong. You got to the, even if your conclusion was correct, if your work was wrong, it doesn't, you didn't reason th through it correctly. Does that make sense? You see what I'm trying to say there? So you got to show your work, and your work needs to be right. And so when it comes, remember that math is based on logic, okay? So this is kind of a, a mathematical structure almost here. Um, here's a, with my free, my free thinking argument, a form of it goes like this, and, and I was actually arguing it this way um, this past week on, on Facebook in this interaction I was telling you about. And I said, look, if, if there is no libertarian free will, then there is no rationality and and knowledge gained from this rationality. So, um, look like this, or we could write it like this. Um, one, no libertarian free will implies 
uh, no rationality, okay? So no LFW implies no R, okay? Now, the guy I was arguing with uh, actually said, I do not possess a thing called rationality or knowledge, right? He actually was going to deny that he was rational and possessed knowledge, okay? So look at this. If you want to do that, if, you, if, you're, if I said, look, if you don't have libertarian free will, then you don't have rationality, and he, if, he affirms the consequent, yeah, no rationality. Well, what are we left with here? We're left with the question mark, okay? Maybe it's true that he is not rational or possesses knowledge, okay? But if that's true, what's the problem? You're undermining your own mind. Yeah. Uh, uh, if there is no rationality, why trust your conclusion, number one, okay? You, you've just denied that you have the ability to even engage in argumentation at all. Uh, now, as I said in my, in my thesis, determinism could be true, but then it can't be rationally affirmed, okay? So I don't argue that, um, I mean, it, it is possibly true that everything is determined. But if everything is determined, that includes your thoughts and your beliefs, as well as your actions. But if your thoughts that determinism is true is determined, then you're not in a position to know if you're correct, you see. Um, I don't want to get into that right now, but, but there's just problems here. The problem here is affirming the consequent, okay? So if no libertarian free will, then no rationality. If you affirm there's no rationality, well, you can't get to a conclusion from that. Maybe it's true, but you just lose all grounds for even having an argument. Um, so in a valid argument, even if the conclusion happens to be true, the argument for the conclusion is no good because it breaks the rules of logic. All right. You know, we also see this all the time, uh, another logical fallacy that we'll, we'll spend questions on later, or spend a class time on later. Uh, it's called begging the question. This one, uh, to me, seems to be the one that I see the most often, at least when I'm arguing my uh, free thinking argument. Um, they'll, they'll beg the question. Uh, I'll say things like, determinism is true and I know I'm right. Okay, my, my you know, all of our beliefs are determined. I'm not responsible for my beliefs yet. I know that I'm right. Well, how do you know that if even that belief was forced upon you? You're not responsible for that belief. But Christians do it all the time too. Most Christians, uh, well, many Christians anyway, will make comments like this. The Bible says it's the word of God, therefore it's the word of God. All right, that's begging the question because you're assuming something's true to argue that it's true. Um, Assuming you're determined, you know, so with the, with the first one, determinism is true and I know I'm right, you know, you're assuming your determined conclusion of determinism is true. And then saying that the Bible is the word of God, therefore, or the Bible says it's the word of God, therefore it is the word of God. Uh, you're assuming 
that it is the word of God to prove that it is the it's called circular reasoning is another uh, name for that. And so we can't conclude that the Bible is the word of God just because it says it is, right? Um, why is that? I'm not on affirming the consequent anymore. <laughs> I'm on begging the question here. All right. But you, you just can't. Assume. Now, do I think that the Bible is the word of God? Of course I do. But we can't reason to that conclusion just by saying, look, uh, it, it says it right right here in, uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? Um, that it says it's the word of God, therefore it is. Uh, I could write a book and, uh, and, and write in it, this is the word of God. But that doesn't make it the word of God. We have good reasons to conclude that it is the word of God. And I, I think if the... If something is the Word of God, it should say it. You know, I'm, I'm glad the Bible does say that. But that's not the reason we should conclude that. Anyway, let's get back to affirming the consequent. Um, actually, let's go to something very similar. Another logical no-no, Dr. Craig says, is denying the antecedent. Denying the antecedent. This is invalid reasoning also. Uh, let's look at this example. If Tim is hungry, Tia will prepare him dinner. Premise two. Tim is not hungry. Conclusion, therefore, Tia will not prepare him dinner. Now, that might be true, but this is not what the argument is saying. Right? Let's do it again. If Tim is hungry, Tia will prepare him dinner. Tim is not hungry. Therefore, Tia will not prepare him dinner. All right? Do you see how denying the antecedent doesn't work also? It's not what the argument is stating. It could be true, but it's not a good reason to come to that conclusion. Um, now, people aren't as tempted to reason invalidly in that manner by denying the antecedent. So there, I, don't think there's a, I don't think that's really a formal name for it um, or a proper name. But people so frequently make the mistake of reasoning that if P implies Q and Q, affirming the consequent, therefore P, uh, that's, that's fallacious. And so this fallacy has become famous as the fallacy called affirming the consequent. So make sure you avoid that. Avoid that error or you too will be caught off guard and make intellectual errors yourself. But again, you know, it's not fun to get caught in logical errors. However, if you do make a mistake, as I said earlier, and someone corrects you, I want to tell you guys, thank them. Don't get bent out of shape. Don't get emotional. Right? Be intellectual about this. Thank them and learn from it, and don't make the same mistake twice. You know, I love changing my mind if I have good and logical reasons to do so. As a, I, I think, you know, as a theologian, I love changing my mind even on theological matters uh, if I have good and logical reason to do so. And I, I demonstrate that I'm quite willing to do that. So when people say to me, you're not willing to, to change, you're not even willing to look at the evidence that Christianity, Christianity might not be true or that atheism might be true, I'm like, yeah, that's just plain and simply false. I am willing to consider it. And I look at all the arguments I can get my hands on. And I've done this quite often over the last five years. Um, 
And although I've changed my mind on many theological points of doctrine, um, my, my strength and my faith in Christianity has just skyrocketed. It's become so much stronger after thinking things through logically. So I love changing my mind if I have good reasons, and I, I want to encourage you guys to do the same. In fact, in the, uh, in the search process for our new senior pastor, our new lead pastor, one of the questions um, that the, the pastoral team has come up with that we're, uh, we're sending out to this guy to, to answer right now. And, and one of them is, what are some theological issues or doctrines that you've changed your mind on in the last five years? I can give you several that I've changed my mind on. And if you're not, if you're not changing your mind on some things a little bit, I, I have to wonder how much, um, how much you're really, how much of a student you are. You know, are you engaged? Are you really trying to learn? Um, so I think um, most pastors will, will probably be able to offer you, if they're actually in the Word and they're thinking things through logically and trying to be reasonable, they'll, they'll, they'll be some shifting in, in some. Not, now, I'm talking about things that maybe don't, aren't essential Christian doctrines, like we have the EFCA Statement of Faith. If you change your mind on one of those things, on one of those 10 points, then uh, if you're ordained, you have to uh, relinquish your ordination, right? If you change your mind on one of the, the 10 key uh, statements of faith, the essential Christian doctrine of the EFCA statement of faith. Um, and some, you know, maybe after we get through this, I'd like to go through each of the 10 points and look at, you know, what do we believe theologically as a, as a church, as a church body? 